On August 2nd, in just a couple weeks here, my wife and I will be celebrating two years of marriage, and I think I can safely assume that I know just about everything there is to know about marriage. <laughs> okay, maybe I don't, but... I do know a great deal about my wife. Uh, every day I learn a little bit more about her. I know my wife's likes and dislikes. I know her dreams and aspirations. I know what makes her happy. And I also know what really makes her tick. Most of the time, I think most of the time, I use my knowledge of my wife and who she is to love and to encourage her, to be a good husband and partner. But other times, I use my knowledge to really inflict pain, to make things worse, to cause emotional harm to my wife. And I want to admit publicly, as difficult as it may be for me to do this, that there are times in my life when it is far easier for me to hate my wife than it is to love her. It's difficult, especially in a room of people, many of which I, I don't know at all. Some of you I know a little bit. But I think and I hope that most of us, as we're here this morning, can privately admit to ourselves that there are times in our relationships with other people, whether it's with a spouse, a family member, a friend, there are times when it is easier for us to hate them, to hurt them, to despise them even, than it is to love them and to do what we are called to do in that relationship to show and display the love of God. Sometimes Hate is easier than love, even towards those that we love the most. I came to this realization, or I had some of these thoughts when I was reflecting on the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you to open up or find Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. This is a passage that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a passage that's even found and nestled within some countercultural thesis statements, we could say, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in this passage, in Matthew 5.38, we see Jesus talking about one specific area of life that I believe shows the ease by which our hearts lead us astray. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately sick that no man can understand it. In our passage this morning, Jesus directs our attention to the issue of retaliation, revenge, retribution. I mentioned a moment ago that sometimes it's easier for me to hate my wife than it is to love her, and I realized that when I realized that sometimes it's easier for me to have vengeance and retribution and revenge at the core of what I'm doing. It's easier to do that than to show mercy and compassion and forgiveness when my wife hurts me, when she's upset me or angered me, 
It's in these moments when my heart sometimes just craves revenge. And if we're careful, I think we can recognize within all of us that there's a craving and a longing for vengeance in our hearts. Whether that's something we can see displayed in our relationships, whether that's a love for movies where somebody takes out vicious revenge on somebody who's hurt them. My heart sometimes craves revenge. It's in these moments when I use my knowledge of my wife and who she is to say things that I know will hurt her. I know exactly what to say sometimes to make her feel exactly what I'm feeling. There are friends of mine in ministry, other pastors who I speak to frequently, who would really encourage me if they were given a chance to not say some of the things I just said. I take a risk as a pastor, as a speaker, who stands behind a pulpit and projects the authority of Scripture towards you. I take a risk that the impression I give is that the pastor has marital problems or, or that I don't love my wife. Well, those things are not true. Most of the time, I act as though I love my wife, but sometimes, sometimes the things I do are not loving. Sometimes I fail to show her the love that God has called me to show her. Elise and I don't have marital problems, but we each have a heart problem. And so do you. I want to be vulnerable this morning. I want to take the risk of of exposing some of the sin that's in my heart because I want you to feel vulnerable as well. I want you to feel vulnerable to how the Holy Spirit might speak to you today. I'd like to read the passage, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 38, and then I'm going to read the verses again as we go through them. You have heard that it was said, this is Jesus speaking, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone, you, uh, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 38 here, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said. Jesus is referencing Old Testament law and Jewish tradition. And to understand what Jesus is talking about here in this passage, we have to understand the context that Jesus is speaking in. We're jumping straight into a text called the Sermon on the Mount by most scripture, by most Christians. It's a collection of teachings that Jesus publicly proclaimed to people. And in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 specifically, Jesus is challenging the common perceptions of the day. He's challenging the people's understanding of God's law. And he's specifically challenging Pharisees, these religious elite teachers who taught God's law, and he's challenging the way they taught and understood God's law in their daily lives. 
The Pharisees were considered by most people to be the religious and the righteous elite of Israel. They were considered to have a superior understanding of God's law than most people. But they took God's law too literally. They made loopholes around God's law so that they could break the laws and the commandments of God, but do so in a way that allowed them to feel good about themselves and allowed them to project this image of holiness and righteousness to the world. And so they would walk around and bend God's law as it suited them. They often misinterpreted the intent of the passages in favor of their own traditions. And at this point, in this moment, Jesus has challenged them about many topics. He's challenged them about adultery. He's challenged them about promises. He even challenges them about something I was reminded of today. I was speaking to a man just before the service, a man who I respect and admire, who shared with me that in his life there was a moment where he hated somebody, and he was able to acknowledge that Jesus considers that equal to murder. Jesus challenges the common perceptions of our day and of his day. And every time he does so, he takes that opportunity to challenge, but to also teach. He challenges and he teaches and he teaches the people what it truly means to have God's law affect their lives. What it truly means to take what God has said and make it real and personable and applicable. He clarifies God's law, and he calls for a more perfect understanding of the law. He doesn't change the law, but he changes our hearts, and he changes our perception of what God has said, that we might be better able to, to fulfill God's law in our lives. And our passage this morning is the same thing. Jesus references a phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is a phrase that is used multiple times and sometimes in different forms in the Old Testament. And I want to give one example, Leviticus 24. You don't have to turn there. I just want to read it. It says, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. So the question is, how did the Jewish people understand passages like this, like this Leviticus passage? This law was not meant to be taken literally. The Jewish people didn't believe it was given literally that if I for somehow were to remove someone's hand, that my hand should be removed. The only time they take it literally is this one clause that we pay life for life, that if I kill a man, the, uh, the punishment for me is that I would be put to death. It's capital punishment. Other than that, this is a representation of equal and fair justice in Jewish law. One was not meant to be punished more severely than their crime. If somebody commits a crime, their punishment should be just, it should be fair. And so in a sense, these passages, these eye-for-an-eye principles, put a ceiling on the punishment and the retaliation that somebody can receive for what they've done. 
God limits revenge. And for most cases, this wasn't meant to be retribution that is served on a personal, private, uh, in a personal private way, but it was meant to be done through the courts, through the legal system that the Jewish people had. So that if I were to, to commit a crime or to do something to hurt you, you would take me to court, and that court, those leaders would decide the payment that I would give you, that I would pay you financially to compensate for what I've done. My punishment would fit the crime, and usually that punishment was to pay for the harm I've done. The purpose of this law, again, was about fair justice. By setting the standard of an eye for an eye, God gave a system that was fair in its retaliation, even to the criminal, even to the sinner. And through that, God shows his justice and even his grace. By giving this power to what I call the courts, God gave a system that helped people and stopped people from executing their own revenge, which almost always is unfair and escalates bad situations. I'll admit another thing, it's, it's no longer entirely true in my life, but there was a time, especially in high school, when I was a young driver, when I really struggled with road rage. And I remember in high school, if somebody around me was driving and they did something that I thought was just stupid, and they did something uh, that I thought might cause an accident or hurt me in some way, I would purposely go out of my way to take revenge in that moment, to do things that could potentially cause an even worse accident, to show them that what they just did to me was stupid and I could do it back to them. I'm sure a few of you are thinking, wow, I'm going to make sure I'm nowhere near that guy when we leave church. <laughs> but that was my mindset as a high schooler, as a young man, because I felt that I had to show people that what they did was wrong, that they could have hurt me or they could have hurt somebody else. I had to show how bad people's driving was by driving poorly. I did foolish things that in the situation could only have made things worse. When we take justice into our own hands, when we claim vengeance for ourselves because of someone else's sin, we become the sinner. We become the problem. We become the people who escalate and make things worse. And in that moment, we even cause our brother or sister or neighbor to sin as well. Because if they do something wrong and then we do it back, what's their response going to be? To take vengeance on us. There's this vicious cycle that the human heart perpetuates of vengeance and retaliation. Jesus cites Old Testament law and tradition. He cites something that was known very well to the Pharisees and the people then. The principle of an eye for an eye. But in verse 39, he begins his teaching. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
relative to other cultures. This principle of an eye for an eye that was given in the Old Testament was incredibly humane. Most other cultures surrounding the Jewish people and in the world uh, had some sort of system where if I did something wrong, I would go before the Lord or an authority, and they would have the right to exact justice. And so most cultures didn't give vengeance and retaliation, uh, the power of that to the people. They gave it to an authority. But more often than not, that authority had the power to punish somebody any way they pleased. And oftentimes, the punishments were unfair. These Old Testament laws were set in place to limit retaliation. Jesus begins his sermon on the Mount with a thesis statement. I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And in this, he doesn't cancel out God's law. He doesn't say the principle of an eye for an eye is no longer applicable. He affirms that statement, but he goes on and teaches something profound and beautiful, and he holds his people, his listeners, he holds us to a higher standard. He takes the implication of an eye for an eye to its logical, moral, and Christian conclusion. If it was better in the Old Testament, if it's better overall in our everyday lives to limit retaliation and to not let it go unchecked, then certainly non-retaliation is the highest standard. Do not resist the one who is evil. This is the central point of what Jesus is saying here in this passage. It's what anchors everything he's saying. When we buy into the lie that it's our role to resist an evil person through retaliation, when we buy into the lie that it's our role to resist the one who insults us or sues us or oppresses us or takes things from us, we fail to resist evil and we ultimately become evil. It's when we feel that we are attacked by others that our desire is for revenge and justice. It's when my wife says something to me that hurts me whether she intended to or not, that my heart wants to retaliate and to respond and to hurt her. That's the natural human condition before the Lord restores us to glory. I believe our hearts long for that, that response of retaliation and revenge, because we are created in God's image. That sinful response that comes from our heart ultimately comes from the image of God in us. God is just, and he is perfectly just. And when he makes us in his image and he breathes life into us, and we bear that image and we reflect who God is into the world, we become people who crave justice. But because of sin... Because our flesh is perverted and tainted and weak, that good desire for justice becomes sinful desire for revenge. And it makes it almost impossible, if not completely impossible, for us to execute revenge and retaliation without sin. This is why I believe in Scripture we see that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Not because vengeance is bad, not because retribution is bad, but because when it comes from our wicked, deceitful hearts, they can only be filled with sin. 
I want to be clear. Jesus is not calling us to let murderers and rapists and thieves continue to hurt our communities and our families. When he says turn the other cheek, he doesn't say be a doormat. He doesn't say don't seek justice. But what he's doing is he's removing the role of retaliator from us, and he's giving it to a higher authority. God instituted human government, and we see in Scripture that one of the reasons he does that is so that government can be the ones that provide retaliation. That when somebody hurts us, when they harm us, when they break the law, they face government revenge. Because God doesn't want us to be retaliators. He wants us to be submissive and forgiving. But he also wants us to seek justice. Again, this isn't a call to let criminals go free. It's a call to let other people who God has placed in power handle things. Human retaliation always leads to sinful deterioration. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus isn't speaking about physical violence. We read this passage and we say, well, if somebody hits me, I'm supposed to just let them hit me back. But Jesus isn't talking about the physical nature of that. He's talking about insults. This can apply to somebody who physically strikes us, sure, but Jesus is talking about insults. If somebody insults you, turn the other cheek. And we know this because it was the cultural norm at the time to insult a person by taking your right hand and backhanding them, striking them, slapping them across their right cheek. This was an insult. And so to be struck on the right cheek is to be insulted by a person. Not assaulted, insulted at least in this Jewish understanding. We are called to be submissive to the one who attacks us. Insults that are met with insults only make things worse. The one who actively invites insults into their life does not become immune. They may be insulted again, but that person is acting in a way that doesn't escalate the situation. They de-escalate the situation. And even if we find ourselves in a place in life where people insult us and we let them and they insult us and insult us and they keep attacking and they never relent, even if we find ourselves in that place, we are still called to submission, to non-retaliation, because it's okay to stand and to wait on the Lord and to stand firm in Him as our refuge, as our strength. Jesus is calling us here to respond to evil with goodness, to respond to acts of aggression with submission, and to at, uh, respond to sin with grace. If anyone would sue you, we see this phrase in verse 40. Let's read that verse. Verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In this passage, there are two garments that we see talked about. There's the tunic and there's the cloak. The tunic we can consider as sort of um, an undergarment, 
not like underwear, but uh, like an undercoat. And we can consider the cloak to be the outer coat. And so you have these two layers of clothing that you have, your tunic, what you wear under your cloak, and then you have your cloak that you wear over that. Jesus is referencing the practice of giving one's tunic, the undergarment, as collateral. Under the system of an eye for an eye, if somebody were to accuse you of something and take you to court and you were to be found guilty, you would be given that equal fine. If you were to take me to court because of something that I did and it was found that I owed you $5,000, that that was the fair payment in response to what I did to you, I would give you my tunic as collateral until I paid what I owed. And you would keep that until you received payment. But the Old Testament law made it illegal and immoral for someone to take the cloak, the outer garment, as collateral overnight. Exodus 22, 26, and 27, it says, If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it before the sun goes down. So you can take the cloak, but you cannot keep it overnight. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. The idea here is that we cannot take someone's outer garment because that's what they slept in. In the cool of night, the cloak is what kept people warm. It was necessary for survival. For the Lord Jesus tells his followers, in those situations where you are required to give your tunic, give your cloak as well. To the one who would legally take these things away from you, that would make you their debtor, give to them your cloak as well. When we find ourselves in disputes, lawsuits, or, or other situations where we're required to give of ourselves, we must not resist in order to cling to our material possessions, to cling to our comfort, to even cling to our own survival. Instead, we trust in the provisional power of God. We trust in Him as refuge and strength, and we respond to those people generously. Jesus calls us to respond to accusers with humility, to those that take from us with sacrifice, and to respond to the greedy with contentment. Verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Jesus is talking about the Roman conscription of private citizens that they might help carry military equipment for soldiers as they traveled. If you were living in the Roman Empire at any moment especially if you were a man, a Roman soldier could approach you, hand you his things, and in that moment you were required to drop everything you were doing and to walk with him one mile. This was the way that the Roman government eased the burden of soldiers and helped spread that burden on the citizens that those soldiers protected. It was illegal for a Roman soldier to ask you to go any farther than a mile, 
But at any point, they could ask you to go that mile. And Jesus tells his followers, if a soldier comes up to you, a Roman soldier, and asks you to carry his weapons and his armor, carry it not one mile, but two. This is that idea of going the extra mile. Jesus is telling a Jewish audience to go two miles. This is significant. We remember that the Jewish people were in Israel, yet Israel was under subjection to Rome. They were an occupied people, and the Romans despised the Jews. Romans tolerated other cultures. Other cultures, other places were allowed to carry out their culture as long as they paid their taxes and were a good province of Rome. But the Jewish people were despised and hated because of how different they were. And so these Roman soldiers weren't just protectors of Israel, they were occupiers and oppressors. They were blasphemers. And Jesus says, even to that person, even to the person you despise the most, who oppresses you and holds their authority over you and does vicious and terrible and cruel crimes to you and your family, to that person, go the extra mile. Don't resist, don't retaliate, don't stop at a mile, drop the stuff and walk away. In those moments where people demand that we serve them, we must fully embrace our identity as servants. God has given this identity of servants, of this idea of washing each other's feet. And we should not reject that identity just because somebody forces us to serve. Jesus calls us to respond to oppressors with a servant's heart. He calls us to respond to enemy armies with open arms. He calls us to respond to overbearing people with perseverance. Verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus ends his teaching here in this passage. He goes on to teach some more. But he ends this thought with a call to generosity and compassion. The Christian, you and I are called to be humble, to be submissive, to be gracious and merciful and loving. The foundations of living a vengeance-free life are grace and love. God doesn't seek vengeance against you and I, for us who are believers, because he loves us, he loves you, and he pours his grace out into your lives. And as image bearers, even image bearers who have perverted and tainted this idea of justice that dwells within our hearts and our beings, as image bearers, we're called to project love and grace. When we project love and grace... We honor God. We honor each other. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Man must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. This morning my hope is that we can be vulnerable, that we can understand our hearts, that we can see how our hearts crave vengeance. And we can allow these teachings of Jesus to take root in our hearts.
Most of us will have to fight this tendency of our hearts to seek revenge on a daily basis. It will be a daily fight for us, even when they come in small ways. Jesus' teachings must become part of who we are. The next time we're cut off on the freeway, the next time we're insulted, the next time we're falsely accused of something, the next time we are betrayed or lied to or cheated or interrupted in a conversation, in all these moments we must allow these teachings of non-retaliation to permeate our very lives, to saturate our souls and to take root in our heart. Because it's in those moments of daily life when little things get to you and you respond in this way that you prepare yourself for what I believe is coming. Maybe not in your generation or mine, but definitely in the generations to come. When we as Christians, even in this nation of freedom, are subjected to persecution and assaulted when we're arrested and torn away from our families all because we worship the one who put aside his vengeance, his wrath for a time that we might be saved by his grace. Father God, we thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer this morning to myself was that I would speak as little as possible, that the Holy Spirit might speak that the words of the Lord Jesus Christ might speak into our hearts that as we become vulnerable, our hearts which are, which are hardened, which are covered in fat might be thinned out, loosened, that we might respond to you in love, but also in appreciation for the authority you hold over our lives, that we are subject to your will, that we are subject to the word of God, that this authority that Jesus speaks even to the Jewish people has principles that we as the body of Christ must follow today. Father, I thank you for your words to us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.